Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. And it'll be helpful for you to have your Bibles open and read along if you didn't have a Bible with you this morning in the Pew Bible in front of you, page 1029, Revelation chapter 2, the letter to Thyatira. Let's stand together as we read God's Word. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith, your service and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect together on God's Word. Everybody knows what an inside joke is. An inside joke is some kind of humorous comment that's made, uh, by and and it's understood by a particular group of people. And when you hear somebody else's inside joke, you may understand the words, but you don't get the, the impact. You don't get the meaning of those words because it's just known by this inside group. And you don't get it unless somebody from the inside tells you, well, here's the context, here's the background to that kind of comment, so you understand what the joke means. And when we turn to the New Testament, the book, of, especially in the book of Revelation, it's full of inside information. When, when you turn and read some of the New Testament, you hear the words, you understand the words, but you don't really understand their meaning, you don't get their impact if you don't know the inside information And that's certainly the case this morning with the book of uh, Revelation in chapter 2, verse 18, speaking about the church of Thyatira. The inside information comes from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 16. And there you learn that Jezebel is the wicked wife of Ahab. Ahab is the king of Israel. Israel's been split into two, if you remember. It was uh, 
It was Saul and David and Solomon, and they were the kings or the monarchs over what was called Israel. And then got split into two, north and south. And the south was called Judah, and the north was called Israel. And so when you work through the book of First and Second Kings, you have this back and forth. Here's the king of Judah. Here's the king of Israel. Here's the king of Judah. Here's the king of Israel. And Ahab is one of the kings of Israel. And he marries Jezebel. And she single-handedly corrupts her husband. She becomes sort of the power broker behind the throne. She's operating the switches and making Ahab do what he, what she wants him to do. And she's the main cause of the moral depravity and decay in Israel. Now the people and Ahab have responsibility, but she's the main thorn. She's inside the camp, and she's the main cause of this moral corruption that's happening in Israel. 1 Kings 16. In the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah, this is the southern kingdom, Ahab becomes the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. He reigned in Samaria, that's the capital city, over Israel for 22 years. And Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He married Jezebel, daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Ahab even set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he himself built in Israel. Ahab made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel before him. What a legacy. Here's a man who's following in wicked steps, and what he's known for is he's more wicked than anything else that's come before him. Sidon is notoriously a wicked region known for its idol worship, and Jezebel is daughter of this priest king, Ethbael. He's the priest, and he's the king over this area called Sidon. And Ahab marries Jezebel, and Jezebel moves into Israel. And when Jezebel comes into Israel, she's got baggage. She's got stuff she's carrying. She's got a caravan. She comes in, and she's not coming alone. She's bringing her idols, the the Baal, the male idol, and the Asherah, the female idol. And she's setting up this male and female idol worship inside of Israel. And she also brings an entourage of priests. And these priests assist the Israelites in knowing how to worship these Baals. They know how to worship Yahweh, but there's also another God. And so we've got to bring these priests in so they can help people who've been currently inside the church also know how to worship another God. Ahab builds a temple to these false gods. And they're supposed to be worshipped right alongside of Yahweh, the God of Israel. In 1 Kings 18, there's a famous showdown, you may remember, on Mount Carmel. Elijah is the voice, he's the prophet, he's the voice of God. And he's standing on this mountain called Mount Carmel. And he's standing alone next to this one altar built to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And on the other side, there's 450 priests to Baal, 450 priests to Asherah. And they're all standing next to their altar, and they're going to find out in this showdown who's the real God. 
And I'll let you read what happens in 1 Kings 18 for yourself. But probably the most important statement, or at least one of the most important statements there, is uh, the crowd, the Israelites come to this mountain. And they're ready, just like you might think in a boxing match, there's a crowd around. They're going to see who wins the showdown. And the Israelites have come up to the mountain, and Elijah looks at them and says, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. He looks at the people, and then the text says, And they said nothing. They stood there. Like they were paralyzed. See, the people of God had become so used to serving two gods. It just become part of the culture. Well, yeah, there's the God of Yahweh and there's the God of Baal. And, and we've just gotten so used to serving them in our culture. And I've gotten so used to serving them in my own heart that when I'm asked to choose, I can't. I'm I'm paralyzed. I'm paralyzed by, by these voices of tolerance saying we've got to be able to, to include everybody in. And so the people of God passively stand by as evil enters their own church. If you want to see where that began, just go back to Genesis chapter 3. When the leader stood passively by as evil entered God's garden. Many years later, finally there came a time of judgment for Jezebel. Her judgment was prophesied by Elijah in 1 Kings 21, but you don't realize it until many years later, 2 Kings chapter 9. And Jehu is the new king of Israel, and he's the one chosen by God to exact this judgment on Jezebel. Here's what it said, 2 Kings chapter 9. Jehu had Jezebel thrown down from an upper story window. Some of her blood splattered on the wall, and horses trampled her. Jehu then went in and ate and drank. Then Jehu said, take care of that cursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. They went back and told Jehu, who said, This is the word of the Lord spoken through Elijah. Dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Her body will be like dung on the ground. And no one will be able to say, This is Jezebel. So when you turn to Revelation chapter 2, and read this letter, now you have the inside information. Now you know when Jesus says Jezebel, what the people might have been thinking. Just hearing the name Jezebel would have sent shivers down the spine of the people in this church. Jezebel was shorthand for the worst kind of religious practice. The people of God accommodating other gods, other kinds of religions, other kinds of wicked practices that the world brings in. It's, it's the theological tolerance of God's people who passively stand by, acting like they're paralyzed. 
this theological tolerance that's inside the church and as evil creeps inside the church. We're not talking about the culture. As it creeps inside the church, the people of God have gotten so used to it, they're paralyzed to do anything about it. Jezebel's influence is felt whenever people who call themselves Christian worship God on Sunday only to depart and worship the ways of the world the other six days of the week. And they no longer see it as a problem. It's not like it's, it, it, it can't be tempting, but the, pro, the biggest problem is they come here, they raise their hands, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But when they go out, they raise their hands to the things of the world. And when you ask them about it, they don't see it's a problem. We see both in the Old and the New Testament, God hates this kind of duplicity, this kind of religious syncretism. This is the environment Jesus comes to when he comes to Thyatira. And he comes and he speaks this word to this city. Now, as a city, Thyatira is probably one of the most unimportant cities of the seven cities. It doesn't have any particular political power. It doesn't have any particular religious significance. Instead, its identity came from manufacturing. They, these are people who made stuff. They, they're blue, it's a blue-collar town. It's full of people who work with their hands. They work to manufacture things from wood or bronze or, or metal or linen. You might remember from Acts chapter 16, Paul runs into a, a lady named Lydia. Remember this? And she's the seller of purple cloth. And she's from Thyatira. See, she's a worker. She understands how to make things. She, she brings things to the market. And ancient historians tell us that Thyatira is a home of uh, these very influential guilds. They're associations of craftsmen. So you'd have a woodworking guild. You have a metalworking guild. You have a linen working guild. Whatever it would, it would be sort of like a labor union. And if you want to be a part of this labor union, one of the things that you had to participate is in these great parties that they would have. And the great parties were fun, but in, intermixed in this great party, what was served was copious amounts of wine. What was served was women. And at some point, you had to acknowledge the little deity that sat off in the corner that was the God of the guild. And even if you really didn't believe it, you still had to come along. You had to be a part of that group. Because if you weren't part of the group, then you'd become a social outcast. You, you might lose some financial reward. You, you had to participate. It's okay if on Sunday you go and say something about Yahweh. But when you come to this party, you've got to be a part of this team. And if you're not a part of celebrating the way we celebrate, then you're an outsider. And that might really cost you something. Might cost you money. Might cost you a livelihood. Might cost you a promotion. You, you might sit on the sidelines where other people who are accommodating these things, they're moving up. And if you could just say, just for this one time, oh, it's okay, I acknowledge this God of the guild, then you could move up too. But if you don't, you get left on the sidelines. So there's a big, big cost if you're a Christian living in this town. 
verse 18, chapter 2, Jesus then speaks to this city. He says, I am the Son of God. I'm the one who rules and reigns over everything. Everything begins and terminates with me. And according to verse 23, it's to this Jesus we're going to stand before one day and we're going to have to give an account for every action. This is the same Jesus who's reigning and ruling everything and you and I will stand by ourselves before him and give an account for every action. This is going to happen. Jesus is also the one described as eyes like flames of fire. He, he sees clearly everything that is hidden. I don't see it. Your friends might not see it in you. You might not see it in you. But you know who sees it all? Jesus sees it all. He's got eyes like flames of fire. Nothing escapes his view, no matter how small it may seem to you. He sees through all kinds of duplicity in our hearts. He, he sees through this religious tolerance that's happening there. He sees that some people are following after Jezebel's teaching. His eyes are like flames of fire, and he actually sees into the minds and hearts of the people. He knows the motives. He knows the passions. He, he knows the desires of each person. This Jesus steps into this city and he gives words of commendation and then he gives words of correction. First verse 19, he's words of commendation. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. I know that your latter works exceed the first. Here are the four works that they have. Love, faith, servants, service, and, and patient endurance. These are these are excellent words of commendation. This is something that any church would, would long to hear. I know your works. And when, when Jesus says that to a blue-collar town, they get that. They're working people. They get things done. So he looks at them and says, I know you guys are hard workers. You brought that work ethic from the culture into the church, and I know these works that you're doing. I know that, that you have this love which is expressed in work it's expressed in your deeds see these people get together and they express their love for each other by doing things for each other they don't just say things that when they come together they're hard working they they know how to get things done this is a church that never lacks for help when there's some need in the second grade sunday school class somebody steps up when there's some need to house a ministry apprentice somebody steps up when when there's some need for a deacon or an elder to serve, then, then people step up. This, this congregation is full of people who serve, and they serve this way, with patient endurance. They're patient with each other. They don't need a lot of uh, accommodation. They don't need a lot of accolades for their service. They just patiently endure and perhaps this best thing said about them, their latter works exceed their first. Just the opposite in Ephesus. Remember in Ephesus, what did they lack? They had this great doctrine. What did they lack? They've lost, their, they've lost their first love. 
and they, they had some love, apparently, and they've lost it. But in Thyatira, they started out with this love, and it's grown. Their, their latter works exceed their first. So isn't it, don't you find it so easy to start out with a big bang? Oh, I'll volunteer, I'll do that, and you have all this energy. But what happens over time? It's just so easy for, just, for you just to lose steam, to lose energy. But when you got around the people of Thyatira, they were gaining momentum. They were growing in their love and their patient endurance and their service for each other. Great, great testimony. Great words of commendation. But then quickly, verse 20, we turn this familiar corner. These words of commendation turn into words or towards words of correction. But I have this against you. See, the, 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 these flaming eyes, they recognize things that are good, but he sees a cancer in the camp. And he's got to offer these words of correction. John Stott says it this way. Jesus looks at this church and says, I love your love, but I hate your tolerance. I love your love, but I hate your tolerance. Verse 20, Jesus identifies the problem. You see there is the teaching of Jezebel. This tolerance for her teaching. Now, Matt, just try to imagine you're sitting in the church this particular Sunday. Somebody comes up and says, we, ha- we have a word from the Lord. And after they read verse 19, they take a pause and you think, awesome, we got it. We, we got these great components. And not only do we have these great components, they're growing. And then you hear the word Jezebel associated with you. It's like a bomb must have gone off. What do you mean? Jezebel, see, they know the inside information. So when Jesus looks at this church and says, you have somebody who has this teaching of Jezebel, it's not only inside your congregation, some of you are buying in and some of you are tolerating that it's there. Last time we saw Jezebel, she had a skull, feet, and hands. And now, like the worst sequel, sequel that could ever happen, she's back. If you're like me, growing up in the 80s, you unfortunately went to the uh, Halloween movie. What's the scariest part about those movies? You kill the guy, right? And what happens? You turn around and he comes back. And that's what's happened. Jezebel's come back. We thought she was dead. We thought it was over. I thought We thought the judgment was final. But somehow Jezebel and her teaching comes back. Comes back to this church comes back to every church if you're not on guard. This Jezebel, not in reality, but this person, a prophetess, she enters the church. Somehow she becomes very influential. We don't know. Maybe she's very persuasive in her speech. Maybe she's very caring in her tone. Maybe she has some sort of political weight in the city. Whatever it is, whatever her character trait Jesus looks at the character and and he hates what she's teaching and he hates that people are tolerating it. 
this, this New Testament Jezebel penetrates this blue-collar crowd just like the Jezebel of 1 Kings. She, and she sets up an altar, not a literal altar, but a place, a podium, a, a lectern, a PowerPoint presentation. She sets it up and she begins to teach that it's, it's okay to come to church and worship God and then return to your guild and worship the God of the world. It's okay. Well, who wouldn't vote for that? It's okay as a businessman to come in and worship God and then go out and be crooked in your business dealings. It's okay to come to church and worship God and then go out and satisfy whatever sexual desire that you have. It's okay to worship God and to get drunk on the weekends. It's okay to worship God and do whatever it takes to grow your business. If theological tolerance is the way to get promoted to get noticed, to get wealthy, then that's okay. And Jesus comes in and says, I hate that. And somebody in the church should stand up and not tolerate it inside the church. Some people had bought into this Jezebel 2.0. Maybe worse, many stood by paralyzed. They said nothing, just like the people on Mount Carmel. Maybe the cultural shouts for tolerance were so loud that it just diminished and strengthened the backbone of the strong people in the church to say, we just can't overcome the weight of the culture. If we stand up and we take a stand inside the church, who knows what might happen to us? And so they paralyzed And you and I know that the spirit of Jezebel never really dies. Tolerance, of course, can be a great character trait. We have to say that for sure. Christians, as Christians, we we want to exercise a wide tolerance, especially for other religious views. We don't want the government to come in and impose. We, We don't want others imposing their religion on us. And we don't want to impose our faith on them because that's not how Christianity works. Christianity doesn't work by imposing. Christianity works by proposing, by proclaiming a truth, by offering people a way into the kingdom, by proclaiming, by proposing who Jesus is. So we affirm that it's a healthy tolerance to stand next to other religious beliefs and not have... um, imposition but proposition however i like what gk chesterton said tolerance is the virtue of the man without convictions tolerance is often the virtue of the man without convictions see so often in our world in our culture when we hear the word tolerance it means you can't hold fast to any kind of ethnic or any kind of belief you can't hold fast any kind of ethic or moral belief If it conflicts with others, then you have to let go of those things. Tolerance in our culture often uh, requires agreement. And in some cases, you have to celebrate with the person. We shouldn't be surprised at all to find this kind of tolerance demanded from the culture. That should come to no surprise. But Jesus in the letter is not addressing the culture, 
Who's he addressing? He's addressing the church. So he's not looking out and saying, I can't believe this culture is so tolerant. He's like, what's the big surprise? The big surprise is I've come to the church and I found it inside the church. Jesus hates this kind of religious duplicity that people from the pulpit, people from the Sunday school class are proclaiming this kind of tolerance. It reminds me of that warning Paul gave to Timothy. Remember Paul's leaving the scene, putting Timothy behind the pulpit in Ephesus. And he says, Timothy, I want to warn you, a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. They're just not going to want to hear from the Word of God. Instead, to suit their own desires, they're going to gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And that's exactly what's happening in Thyatira. In our day, it would be someone becoming popular within the church because they say, well, you can be a faithful Christian and an adulterer. You can be a faithful Christian and a practicing homosexual. You can be a faithful Christian and a porn watcher. You can be a faithful Christian and a crooked businessman. See, you can have both. God doesn't judge. We shouldn't judge. We should tolerate. We should be diverse. Jesus loves you. We love you. Who are we to judge? This is what this person would say. And to this, Jesus says, I hate that, and I hate that you tolerate it inside the church. Then Jesus moves immediately towards some kind of solution for these people. He, he has this word of commendation. He has this word of correction. But he just doesn't leave him with a, an assessment. He says, here's how you move away from that. And really, it's two words, the word repent. You see it there a number of times. Turn around, you're, you're, you're going in the wrong direction. You believe some kind of false teaching. I'm, I'm trying to help you hear it. I'm trying to diagnose it. I'm trying to say it as clearly. I'm trying to say it as alarming as I can by bringing up even the word, the name Jezebel. You're going in the wrong direction, church in Thyatira. Turn around. Turn around. Repentance means God changes us. We don't change God. So please notice this very alarming statement that there is a time for repentance and there is a time when the time for repentance is over. The time for repentance for this prophetess in the church is over. But for some others, there's still time. There's still time to turn around. So repent. It's not too late. And if you don't, verse 22, 23, I will throw her onto a sickbed. I just don't know if they might have thought, oh, Jezebel got thrown down. Now now this new Jezebel, she's going to be thrown down on this sickbed. And anyone who's attached to her, anyone who's buying into her teaching, they're going to be thrown into great tribulation. And if they don't repent... I will strike her children, those people who believe in what she's talking about, dead. I mean, it's a disturbing description, is it not? 
you read that picture in 2 Kings 9 and just what you could conjure up in your mind, an old woman thrown off a balcony, blood splatters, horses trampling, dogs eating her flesh. You come back out, you see a skull, two hands and two feet. See, it's meant to arrest you. It's meant to arrest a culture dominated by tolerance, dominated by we've lived so well with these two different gods and served them so well. It's meant to be arresting. So you go, gosh, I'm caught in that stream. I've got to get out of this thinking. I've got to move in a different direction. I've got to turn around. Verse 26, this word work comes up. The second way, you've got to repent and then you've got to work. The one who conquers and keeps my, you would have thought he would have said, keeps my word. What does he say? Keeps my works. This works. If you just take the word work and look at it through the whole text, it's one of the keys. Holds the text together. Why? Because these are working people. He's speaking to them. He's saying, hey, you guys know how to work, right? Let's get back to work. It's time to get back to work. And, and this word work is like a stream that flows into an ocean. And I wish I had a whole sermon series right now to just stop. And maybe you're glad I don't. To stop and say, what does it mean to get back to work with Jesus? I see myself getting caught in this stream. I need to turn around. I need to get back to work. But Paul, what does that mean? Well, I I wish I could answer it for you today. I can't answer it for you. You can talk to me. You can talk to Sam. He's smarter than I am. He can help you. But you've got to go back to doing what God has commanded. Jesus says this in John 14, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one. He's the one who loves me. Let me draw a conclusion here. If you're new to the Bible, And I don't mean that you're new to the church. You could be old to the church and new to the Bible. If you're new to the Bible or new to coming to church, you could walk away from this sermon and say, that sure sounds judgmental and intolerant. I I could appreciate somebody saying that. And I would say two things. First, what we're trying to say is not, this is the position of Christ's community church. Or, this is the opinion of Paul Phillips. We're trying to read what Jesus says to the church and understand it. And second, I would say, I don't think it's judgmental and intolerant. I think it's truthful and merciful. See, Jesus, who has eyes like flaming fire, sees the direction you're going in. You're going off an eternal cliff. And if he doesn't say something alarming, if he doesn't say something arresting, if he doesn't say, get out of the street, a bus is coming, then it's not merciful. But he's coming in to say, it's not too late. And I want to think of us thinking of Jesus with these uh, feet like burnished bronze. He's able to stand inside this church. He's able to stand inside inside Christ Community Church, and he's so big, he's also at the same time able to stand at the last day. He's at both of those points, because he's outside of time, at the same time. 
And so he's standing looking at this church, Thyatira. He's standing inside Christ Community Church today. And at the same time, because of his size, he's also standing at the very last day. And he says this in Revelation 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his present earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. So Jesus is standing right now at that day. And he's standing here and he's saying, turn around. It's not too late. Hold fast. Get back to work for and with me. I don't know how you hear this message as an individual. How we might hear it as a whole collective. But the spirit of Jezebel is alive and well in our culture. And if you hold fast to God, there's going to be sacrifices that get made. Friendships, business opportunities, promotion. Are you running in the wrong stream? Are you trying to lift up your hands here and lift up your hands outside? Repent. Turn around. It's not too late. Let's pray. Lord, these are your words. Maybe I've done a a good job describing. Maybe there's certainly there are holes in the description. But your words are the words that last forever. My words pass easily pass away. So my prayer is that as you have brought these people here for this divine appointed time, they would have ears to hear. They would hold fast to you. They would remember or maybe discover What are the works that they need to get busy doing? Lord, help us all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.